Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. And hello and welcome to the first 10 by 9 podcast of 2024. It's great to be kicking off again and we had our first event of the year in Belfast Black Box with a full house on a freezing cold January 17th. The theme was in the beginning. Oh, come along anyway, you'll be fine. She convinced me at least to attend the first practice. She was so insistent and encouraging. I'd love to, said Paula. In fact, I'll come early and help with the preparations. You can see where this is going. I weighed in at 11 pounds, five ounces. <laughs> And apparently I looked like a bowling ball. <laughs> Brilliant memories. An over-enthusiastic student recruiter. A love match that got off to a messy and bloody start. And the beginning and end of something in the low room. So, let's kick off with a first-timer. His name is Michael Topping. And he had the audience eating out of his hand. I can't follow drum scores. I've never played a drum kit in an orchestra before. Yeah, 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 you'll be fine. Come along anyway. She convinced me. At the start of my undergraduate degree, I attended the inevitable Freshers' Fair. As you do, I came away from the week signed up to numerous clubs and societies. One particular stall that caught my eye was advertising a Freshers' Orchestra. The enthusiastic lady running the stall said they were looking for the latest musical talent to perform a concert at the end of term. I mentioned I could play the drum kit. I had a certain flair, I thought, and natural talent, but nothing I'd describe as technical competence. I insisted on making this clear. I cannot follow written drum scores. I'm not trained at all. I'll come along anyway. You'll be fine. She convinced me at least to attend the first practice. She was so insistent and encouraging. I could play the drums okay. Some people said I was, I was pretty good. Why not go along? Maybe it could all work out. I started attending practices as term commenced. My memory is hazy, but I do recall somehow just making it all up. How on earth did I get away with it? Half a dozen practices occurred across the term. I remember approaching the coordinator, the same lady from the stall, on several occasions to ask if everything was okay. Yeah, yeah, you're doing great. Are you sure? I'm actually just making everything up. I'm not sure if you remember, but I can't follow drum scores. <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. I must have been doing okay. She was the one in charge. No comments from the rest of the orchestra. I must actually be doing okay. My memory's quite hazy about the entire affair. I should make it clear that I forgot about this entire experience for 10 years. <laughs> Some sort of mechanism in my brain, I think, cancelled it out because what happened is so ridiculous. The day of the concert arrived. The illustrious recital of our end-of-term Freshers Orchestra, showcasing the latest musical talent the university had to offer. Here's the scene. It was a beautiful late autumn evening, beautifully crisp and magical. The stone music hall nestled in the ancient heart of this university town. At the edge of an elevated green, to one side, a Norman castle, 
and to the other an 11th century Romanesque cathedral. Pure culture. <laughs> you could throw a stone and risk hitting the hallowed graves of historic figures. Pure culture, you could smell it in the air. <laughs> a force beyond or below instinct took me in my little drumstick bag past the luminous windows and into the warm, the warm-up room of this music hall. The lights at the same time were drawing an eager crowd with the promise of musical skill and high art experience. People were dressed up for the evening. I had my customary white shirt and black trousers on. The other musicians were warming up and tuning their instruments. Sitting there as cold, hard reality hit, hard, pressing reality washed over me. I plied the coordinator one last time to reason with me. Look, as you know, I've said this before. <laughs> I can't follow this drum score. I've literally been just making it up the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. I guess her insistence, even at this 11th hour, had me convinced. Standing on the brink, I wanted to believe. I had to believe that what was about to happen would be totally fine. Everything had to be fine. The consequences otherwise. This, this was an orchestral recital of the latest fresher talent. Who in the right mind would send someone into that arena without an actual flipping clue what they were doing? It had to be fine. The time was approaching and the same lady gathered our group together to thank us all for the hard work we put in over the term. She also introduced us to the guest coordinator, sorry, the guest conductor, who would be taking us through the three pieces we've been practicing. <clears throat> guest conductor. <laughs> this guest conductor entered looking like he'd flown in that morning from a conservatory in Vienna or something. <laughs> All I know is he was a complete stranger and none of us had seen him until this point. We were applauded into the hall. Approaching the stage, I'm feeling it now. <laughs> I, <laughs> I ascended the drum kit, which was sitting on its own separate plinth above the rest of the orchestra. So I'm in full view of every face and of course the guest conductor to my left. The room eventually dies down and with it any shred of my confidence that things are going to be fine. My dignity, sense of control are now evaporated. The impending doom of what was approaching was upon me with the added weight of hundreds of expectant critical eyes. They were expecting brilliance or at the very least competence. I didn't know a single beat, not one. I didn't know any of it. I, how did I get there? How could I survive this? The hall is silent. The guest conductor raises his arms. It's now, it's happening. He glares with raised eyebrows over us and then tap, 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 tap. I'm tapping the hi-hats, the pair of closed cymbals to my left. I'm tapping four beats to the bar. I think there's four beats to the bar. Some might have three, but I'm tapping anyway. This is my safe space. This is all I can think to do. All my terrified mind can muster. My fingers and forearm are all that it takes. The rest of me is frozen in terror as the sound of the orchestra moves around me. I look at the score for help, but it's all just algorithms and science <laughs> equations. Pure nonsense. The horror. Very soon, the conductor twigs. 
He smells or something off. He looks sideways at me in my plinth, frozen, but somehow still moving my right arm. It's a look of confounded disgust, utter disgust. Then I'm searching the rest of the kit. I'm trying to break out from my safe space, <laughs> trying to do something that will make me seem capable. Just go for it like I did before. I try to break out, but I'm clinging like a drowning cat to a willow branch. I really should at least throw in a tom, a tom roll or a cymbal crash. Surely the snare drum, I could use the snare, but I'm stuck. The songs are sweeping and changing. They're climbing and falling. Tempo changes and stops and starts. Did you ever see the film Whiplash? At least that guy tried something when he was tricked into a performance he didn't know. All the while, I'm just tapping my hi-hats. Three entire pieces are delivered. I receive 40, 45 looks and glares from the guest conductor. The horror, the nightmarish horror. I'm stuck and I can't move. Stuck in my safe space. Not doing fine. Eventually it all ends. It actually does end. These things do end, thank goodness. I do believe the audience find it in their hearts to applaud us. The other music musicians, I'm sure, gave them something to merit an applause, albeit confused by the wind-up monkey toy on his plinth. <laughs> Needless to say, as soon as I had the opportunity, I packed my neglected stick bag and shuffled out um, quickly as I could. Mortified, avoiding the eyes of the guest conductor, of course, I headed straight for the door, across the hallowed turf, never to return to that music hall ever again. As I said, my subconscious buried most of this deep down. I forgot the story for over 10 years. I don't know what became of that fatally positive coordinator of the whole affair. Did she go on to lead other unsuspecting novices to <laughs> inevitable catastrophe? The question I keep asking myself though is why did I go along with the whole affair? I want to think that I learned a highly valuable life lesson from this whole experience, but if I'm completely honest with myself, I can still be talked into a lot of things by those dreaded words. Don't worry, you'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. You were brilliant. I hope you'll be back with more stories soon. Oh, and apologies to over-enthusiastic English ladies for the accent. We're always looking for new storytellers at 10x9, so if you'd like to tell your first story, like Michael, then get in touch at the 10x9 website. Why not make it a challenge to yourself for 2024? Looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, let's get on to our next story, which comes from 10x9 favourite, Jim Livingston. It's a wonderful story, but just be warned, there are a few little F-bombs in there. Take it away, Jim. In the beginning... It was just Jim. He had a couple of girlfriends, emphasis on friends. No lovers or torrid affairs. He had just started at Queen's University and was enjoying the new world of academia and beer. But romance had not yet appeared. It was a Friday in January. 
He was restringing the guitar in readiness for the folk club session next week when the phone rang. It was his mate, Vincent. Hi, Vince. How are you? What's cooking? Jim, listen, I think you should come down to the Union Bar. I'm with a lovely girl and her friend. I think she would suit you to a tea. Are you coming? Well, well, I hadn't planned to go out, but I hesitated. Oh, come on, big lad, you could do with a good woman in your life. And this one is unattached and beautiful. Oh, all right then, give me 15 minutes. Good man, Jim. You'll not regret it, replied Vince. After a quick wash and a change of clothes, Jim trundled down the road in his old Ford Anglia, musing to himself, what the fuck makes Vince think that he's the perfect matchmaker? He's a good mate, no doubt, but he's a lot of experience of dating girls, especially with him being a clerical student training to be a Catholic priest. <laughs> In a few minutes, Jim entered the bar. A wall of noise, smoke, clinking glasses and laughter met him as he opened the door. He scanned the room for Vince. He found him in one of the cubicles opposite the bar. He was with two girls, both very pretty, but one in particular had the most sparkling smile. Jim, you made it. Great to see you. Ladies, this is Jim I was telling you about earlier. Jim, this is Francis and Paula. Uh, what do you want to drink, mate? Pint of lager, please. Thanks. Hi, girls. Nice to meet you. Vince got the pint and Jim sat beside him with the two girls opposite. He got chatting to Paula first, the one with the stunning smile, who it turned out liked, liked folk music just like him. They all chatted for a few minutes and then the two girls excused themselves while they went to the toilet. Vince grabbed Jim by the arm. For Christ's sake, Jim, you need to speak with Frances a bit more. She's the one I wanted you to meet. <laughs> Not your woman, Paula, whoever the hell she is. Isn't Frances just beautiful? They're coming back. Good luck. Right. Jim was now a wee bit confused. They chatted and drank for another while, and then the two girls announced they were going to the disco upstairs, and off they went. Well, big lad, winked Vince. You going to the disco too, boy? Maybe get a dance with Francis, eh? Go on, big lad. I have to get back to the seminary, so I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> Jim went to the disco and stood for what seemed like ages, hoping to catch sight of the girls. And then he saw her, that wonderful smile. He was shaking with nerves and walked towards her. She had her back to him. As he tapped her on the shoulder, she turned around and that smile took his breath away. Hi, Jim. Nice to see you again. Would you like to dance? Jim stuttered. He held his breath, expecting a no. But she beamed. I'd love to. Thanks. He nearly burst with excitement. They had the statutory three dances, and then Paula looked at her watch. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jim. Francis and I have to go. My sister's picking us up outside in a few minutes, but it was lovely to meet you. Jim grabbed her hand and blurted, Can I see you again? There's a folk concert on Sunday in the McMorty Hall, and I can get tickets when you come with me. <laughs> he held his breath again even longer this time. Yes, came the reply. I'd love to. I'll meet you in the foyer just before it starts. And then with her wondrous smile beaming, she was gone. 
Jim stood in a daze in the middle of the dance floor. She said, fucking yes! He went and punched the air with his fist. The next evening, they took their seats at the concert. They both loved all the musicians and sang along with them joyfully. At one point, Jim tentatively reached across and took Paula's hand. She looked at him and smiled and didn't resist. So they sat hand in hand for the rest of the concert. Later he walked her to her parents' house and at the garden gate said goodnight. He held her hand and drew her near and kissed her gently on the lips. She smiled. She actually said thank you. In the months that followed, they grew closer and closer, going to parties in the cinema and concerts together, laughing a lot, becoming generally recognised by friends as a couple. Then one Saturday afternoon, Jim picked Paula up in his car. She had suggested on the phone that they go for a drive to a nearby park. When he stopped the car, Paula turned and said, Jim, I need to tell you something. I really like you. You're very nice, but I think we're going too fast with our relationship. We need to take a break from each other. Okay, so thank you, but please let me walk home. It's not far. And with that, she got out of the car and walked away. Jim was shattered. I've been fucking dumped. <laughs> he just couldn't understand why or what had just happened. And he went home and he cried all evening. Consoled by his mum, <laughs> who stroked his hair and said, she'll be back, pet, she'll be back. Three months went by and there was no sign of Paula. One evening, Jim met a nice girl called Ruth at a party and she agreed to go on a date with him. She liked parties and discos, but... She wasn't interested in folk music, which only reminded Jim of Paula. His birthday was coming up and Ruth said he should have a party and she would organise it. So invitations were issued and plans made. But the day before the party, Jim was surprised when he bumped into Paula in an empty coffee shop. They were both alone and sat together sipping coffee and chatting idly. Suddenly she looked straight at him, smiled and said, Would you take me to the Aquinas Formal? Next Friday, I'll pay for the ticket. Jim wanted to scream with delight and immediately shouted, Yes, yes, please. Will you come to my birthday party tomorrow night at Mum's? I'd love to, said Paula. In fact, I'll come early and help with the preparations. You can see where this is going. <laughs> the following evening at six, Jim found himself in his mum's kitchen making sandwiches with Paula on his left, <laughs> buttering bread, <clears throat> and the lovely Ruth on his right, cutting the rounds into little triangles. There was little in the way of conversation. Yes, he had forgotten about Ruth when he invited Paula to the party. He was slicing tomatoes. 
using a little machine his mum had bought, which made it possible to slice things, slice things very thinly with extremely sharp blades. But he forgot to use the holder. And he held the big tomato in his hand, slicing one after the other, nervously keeping an eye on the two girls beside him. Suddenly he felt a sharp pain. He looked down to see sliced tomatoes covered in blood. His blood. It turned out that he had sliced the tops of his right hand fingers off. The two girls screamed and each grabbed his hand in unison, crying, I'll take you to the hospital. No, I'll take him. No, I'll take him. The blood flowed copiously and then Paula, in a voice that would scare the fucking devil himself, growled, I will take him. She ended up a teacher, by the way. And she did. Four hours later, with his hand heavily bandaged, they arrived back from A&E to find the party in full swing. Thereafter, Paula and Jim became a steady couple. And a few years later, <laughs> she agreed to be his wife. So in the beginning, there was only Jim. And now, 50 years later, it's Jim and Paula for always. The only issue that was never cleared up, by the way, was which of the birthday party guests had eaten Jim's fingertips. <laughs> Who indeed is the Belfast cannibal? Actually, I was wondering more about Ruth, to be honest. Poor girl. But delighted it all ended happily. Thanks so much, Jim, and great to have you back at the 10x9 microphone. As you know, 10x9 is always free and always will be, but I just want to say a big thank you to Maureen Grigg, who has donated via Patreon. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks too to all our patrons and everyone who has given over the years at the live events. We really appreciate it. Okay, on to our third and final story in this podcast, and I need to explain. Pat Scott was due to tell a story at our Christmas event, but she was unwell. I had already fallen in love with the story and asked her to come and tell it at the January evening, where, as expected, the audience loved it. Now, normally I'd keep a Christmas story for the December podcast, but this was too good to hold on to. I'm sure you'll agree. So, here is Pat Scott. It was a small farm in South Armagh on a cold Christmas morning, and my mum was up early. This wasn't unusual for a farmer's wife, but this morning was different. She knew the children would be charging down the stairs soon to excitedly open their presents. There was also an old aunt and a grandfather living in the house. They would need breakfast as well as all the usual jobs tending to the livestock. But there was something else. She could feel that the baby that she was heavily pregnant with was getting ready to be born. And this was baby number six, so she knew. 
By tea time that evening, with the dinner over and all the kids content, she sent my dad for the midwife while she lit the fire in the low room in preparation for the birth. And the midwife arrived sometime later on her bike. She was a bit wobbly. She had been celebrating with a few sherries and was feeling the effects. Mum got her a seat in the big armchair beside the fire while she went up to the kitchen. A few old boys from the neighbouring farms had gathered to see a programme called the Dickie Henderson Show <laughs> at eight o'clock on our dilapidated black and white TV. Mum made them tea and then came back down to the low room, wakened the midwife and got on with the job in hand. I was born 50 minutes later. What a woman. They don't make them like that anymore. I'm grateful that there are no photographs of me as a newborn. I weighed in at 11 pounds, 5 ounces. <laughs> and apparently I looked like a bowling ball. <laughs> Big round head with eyes and mouth resembling the holes that you put your fingers into. <laughs> My mum and dad couldn't agree on a festive name for me. One wanted to call me Noel and the other Angela. In those days, no one had trendy names like Berry or Holly. And as I was the fifth girl in our family, they had already used up loads of girls' names, including Carol. <coughs> Eventually, they decided to abandon any notion of a Christmas name and called me Patricia. They weren't to know that in years to come, Krista Berg would make the name famous by singing <laughs> about Patricia the Stripper. My name soon got abbreviated by my siblings, but even with a short, no-nonsense name like Pat, people seemed to get it mixed up. My name badge in work used to read SM Pat Scott, staff midwife Pat Scott. I once had a gentleman who admittedly had just driven all night and was probably cross-eyed with tiredness look at my name badge and say, may I call you Spat? <laughs> I said that he could, but that most people just called me Pat. At a family get-together in Canada with distant cousins, one of the girls put a stick-on label on my chest with Patricia written on it. I never liked being called Patricia because of the memories it conjured up for me. The only time I ever got my full title was when I was in trouble with mum. With this at the back of my mind, I stroked out the R-I-C-I-A at the end of my name, leaving just Pat. With hindsight, I think the sticker had probably been placed a bit too low as one of the more mature gentlemen, <laughs> there seemed to interpret the word pat on my chest as an instruction. <laughs> or one of my daughter's eccentric horsey friends who consistently calls me and introduces me as Patch. Anyway, I wasn't very old when I realised that I had been shortchanged by having a Christmas Day birthday. Anyone who has a December birthday will know what I mean. The old, I've only one present for you, but I've added a bit extra for your birthday. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or being given a birthday present wrapped in Christmas paper. <laughs> or I'll get your birthday present to you after Christmas, which translates, I'll pick up something in the Boxing Day sales. <laughs> Truly, I'm not bitter. <laughs> But Christmas Day wasn't all bad. I have lovely memories of the excitement of waking up and seeing that Santa had been. I even remember once seeing his shadowy figure at the bottom of my bed and staying very still as I knew that if he saw that I was still awake, he would leave me clinkers in my stocking. When I was about nine years old, I learned that Queen Elizabeth celebrated an official and an unofficial birthday on two different dates. 
I thought this was a fabulous idea and discussed it with mum. <laughs> I think she understood the need for me, now one of seven children, to have my own identity and my own special day without having it regularly forgotten about in the excitement of Christmas morning. With a name like Pat, it was a no-brainer for me. I would celebrate my birthday on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> and so started a new family tradition which lasted well into adulthood. In my late 20s, I began working as a midwife. Christmas off-duty is every ward sister's nightmare. So what often happens to try and stop fisticuffs amongst the staff is that no annual leave is allowed over that week. This meant that I worked my first share of Christmas Eves, Christmas Days and Boxing Days. Traditionally on Boxing Day, a journalist from the local paper would come onto the postnatal ward to photograph any babies that had been born the day before. Needless to say, I was often chivied into the photographs. There would be some mention in the title of the article about all the Christmas Day babies together. I remember one particularly awful photograph taking after an evening of family celebrations. With a pale face and bloodshot eyes, I looked like something out of the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I always felt sorry for the pregnant women that I would see in the antenatal clinics on the run-up to Christmas. Many of them, who had a due date over the festive period, would ask for an early induction of labour, because how awful would it be to have a baby on Christmas Day? <laughs> they weren't to know they'd come to the wrong midwife. I've often laughed with them and told them that it is possible to live a relatively normal life <laughs> with a 25th of December birthday. In any case, I've survived the trauma of having a Christmas Day birthday and have come to not only endure it, but to thoroughly enjoy it. In my home, we all sit together to open presents on that morning, and then the family all indulge me whilst I have my little special time to open birthday gifts. As my kids are now growing up, they often make the dinner so that I don't even have to cook on my birthday. It really is a special and a joyful day. A final note about my mum. She was small in stature, but big of heart. She had mad red hair, which my dad loved. He often joked about red-haired women being a force to be reckoned with, and he teased mum endlessly about it. Consequently, we all grew up, grew up feeling that somehow our red hair was our superpower. Mum had had a tough upbringing, but it had never made her hard. She was effervescent and loved to laugh and tell stories. She was a wonderful mimic too, and often had us doubled over laughing as she recounted tales of people that she'd met. She and Dad were childhood sweethearts. In those days, you needed to be 21 before you could wed without parental permission. So four weeks after Dad's 21st birthday, they got married. Mum often told us about how her dad had to sign for her because she was only 20. She modelled out love, loyalty and lifelong commitment. She suffered many losses in her life but bore her pain with grace and fortitude and supported our dad through them all. But when he died just shy of their 65th wedding anniversary, that loss proved to be one too many. Her light and sparkle left with him. We watched, helpless, as she retreated into herself and faded away, both physically and emotionally. It was as though she had completed her mission of seeing us all growing up, but now, with Dad gone, there was no reason to stay. She was a remarkable woman who didn't mind doing things a bit differently to others, like giving birth in the low room 
of a small farm in South Armagh on Christmas Day. And 54 years later, in that same low room of that small farm in South Armagh on Christmas Day, slipping away. Christmas is always a time of joy and celebration in our house. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. We celebrate my birthday. And now we celebrate the life of an amazing woman, my mum. Thank you, Pat. Wonderful. And that's it for this podcast. Check out all the 2024 dates on our website and mark them in your diaries. Be sure to keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram for any updates. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen, especially the fabulous Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory and Chris O'Donoghue. There would be no 10 by 9 without them. Thanks, of course, to the beautiful people of the Black Box and our amazing and supportive audience. You give me such joy. Thanks to all our storytellers, of course, but the biggest thanks this week goes to Michael Topping, Jim Livingston and Pat Scott. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.